this Christmas season, we set out on a, a three-week journey. This is the last week of that journey. Uh, next week, you guys will be blessed. Um, Pastor Ron or Ron will be speaking for us on that Sunday, and then the following Sunday, Michael Eastman will be speaking, and my wife and I will be, and family will be going uh, to Nebraska for a, l- a little getaway with our family. So we appreciate your prayers and and, um, and just uh, prayers and be faithful and, and to be here. Those guys will be a blessing to you the next couple of weeks as well. And and uh, bring your families for that season too. And then the Christmas Eve Eve service as well. And um, you'll have that some music and presentation of the gospel that evening. So that'll be on the 23rd this year. So this psalm, the 21st 24th Psalm uh, that was just read is, uh, it's, I've entitled it The Glorious Savior. Uh, it leads us to a glorious entrance into heaven. Uh, this psalm is also known as the Psalm of, a, of Ascension, and it's the climax of chapter 22, chapter 23, and chapter number 24. Um, you'll remember two weeks ago we looked at chapter 22, which deals with Jesus Christ, the um, gracious substitute for our sins, the, the sacrifice, the one who came 2,000 years ago and, and hung on uh, the cross to take away our sins and to set us free unto righteousness. It is the blood of Jesus Christ by which we have redemption and salvation. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 1 and 7, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. And so the chapter 22 deals with the fact that Jesus Christ came, he took upon himself our sins, and he paid the ultimate sacrifice for those sins, which was and is death. Now, there is no crime that can be committed that's not um, payable by death, and that's the reason why Jesus Christ did that. And we also notice through this verse that the hope that we have of salvation is not based upon our own righteousness, but it's based upon and built upon forgiveness. It is a, a gifted righteousness, a, a forgiveness or justification that Jesus Christ or that God the Father applies to all of those who are his based upon the sacrifice of Christ. First um, John 1 and 9, the Bible tells us that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ makes it possible for God to be just and be forgiving at the same time. The reality that a, a holy God who, who cannot look at sin with kindness is able to look at us who are sinners with kindness because of what Jesus Christ did for us in the cross. And Psalm 22 deals with, unfolds that. First Peter 2, 9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what chapter 22 deals with. The 23rd Psalm is the Psalm of the Good Shepherd. It is the fact that not, not only does Jesus Christ die for our sins, but he cares for us in life. He, he shepherds us. He walks with us through the difficult times, through the valleys. He provides for us and protects us. And the Lord is not just uh, our, our um, substitutionary atonement, but he's our daily shepherd. He's sanctifying us or conforming us into the image of his son. 
That is the work of Christ that we're, that we're living in and living through today. These redemptive truths climax in chapter number 24 with Jesus Christ leading those for whom he died and those for whom he cares for each day. Or, or another way of saying that is chapter 24 deals with those for whom Christ died and those for whom Christ continues to intercede and sanctify. Chapter number 24 deals with the climax of that as he leads those people into heaven. Okay? As he walks with them through the, the gates of heaven and enters into the glories of heaven and the blessings of heaven. What we know about salvation is that Jesus Christ is not just the beginner of salvation, but he's the finisher. He's the one who begins it with his death, and he's the one who completes it by, by introducing us to the Father, by presenting us to God the Father blameless. And so I was sitting there um, when we were singing the um, Jude, the last part of Jude, where the Bible talks about that he is able to present us blameless before God. This is the work of Christ. This is the finished or final work of Jesus Christ. This is what we look forward to, that one day we will, we will be presented before God, blameless and innocent, based upon forgiveness and justification and the imputation or the gifting of Christ's righteousness. He says in Romans 8, 29 and 30, for those whom he foreknow, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, these he also called. And those who he called, these he also justified. And those who he justified, these he also glorified. In other words, the process is the Lord's and he will bring it to completion. He will complete it one day. Sometimes it's easy to look at ourselves and we see our fallen state and we see our flesh and we see how often we fail and we think, man, there, there's really no hope for us. But we have to stop and realize that we're, in the, we're on the journey right now. We're being sanctified. We're being conformed into the image of Christ. And one of the hopes that we have is that by being in that process, by God working in our hearts each day to conform us into the image of Christ is evidence that he has claimed us for himself and it is evidence that he will one day complete us. Philippians 1 and verse 6, you're familiar with it. The Apostle Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who hath began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will bring it to completion. Jesus Christ will accomplish the thing that he started when he claimed us for himself in, in eternity past, when he died for us on the cross, and, and then there are many other steps that are on this journey as well. Now this psalm specifically deals with these truths, but it is a psalm that is a song. It is something that would have been sung um, as a congregation or as the Hebrew people or the Jewish people would come together. They would sing this song. And specifically, it relates to in Exodus, when, when um, not, not in Exodus, in 2 Samuel, when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant up uh, after he has taken it from Obed-Edom, and he's bringing it up to Jerusalem again. Many believe that this was the song that they sang as they approached the the place where the Ark of the Covenant would be, 
would be said. And the Ark of the Covenant was just was a, a picture of God's presence. It was where God dwelt. We know that they put it into the Holy of Holies, and no one was able to enter into the Holy of Holies except for the high priest. And once a year, the high priest would, would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would make a sacrifice unto the Lord. And if he entered into the Holy of Holies, he himself was not worthy to enter into the Holy of Holies. He had to bring with him a proper sacrifice. If he didn't bring with him a proper sacrifice, he would not be accepted by God. And history will tell us that he would die. The Lord would kill him right there on the spot. It's interesting part of this story. The reason why the Ark of the Covenant was in Obed-Edom is because the children of Israel made a special cart for the Ark of the Covenant. And they were carrying it on this special cart. And they began to lose their balance. And the Ark began to to fall off. And a man named Uzzah reached out to touch the Ark of the Covenant to, to stable it. And immediately God killed him. And this struck fear in David's heart and in the children of Israel's heart. So instead of continuing on this journey, they, they took the ark and they put it in Obed-Edom's house and left it there until they knew what to do. And, and the story goes that God blessed Obed-Edom's house and David realized it and he wanted it to be where it was supposed to be. So they went and they put it on the proper cart or the carrying poles <coughs> where it couldn't lose balance. And they took it up and they, they journeyed up so if you can picture this psalm in that, in that process, here David is with all the people of Israel, and they're walking up, and, and on the journey, as they're coming to the hill of the Lord, which was also known as Mount Zion, they sing the first two verses of this psalm. As they approach the hill, or they come to the base of the hill, they begin to sing verses three down to verse number six, and then as they approach the... the um, the climax of the, the top of the hill, they begin to sing verses seven down to verse number 10. And this is the, uh, what we would call the historical events that are surrounding this psalm. Although it is very prophetic in nature, there were events that surrounded the actual, um, the actual writing of this psalm. So they approach the hill, or they, they're on the journey to the hill in verse 20, chapter 24. Let's read verse 1 and 2 together and just follow along with me. The Bible says, the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and, the, and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The first two verses, as, as they're on this journey, the implication of the first two verses is, who is invited to join this procession? Uh, again, there's a large mass of people that are going on this journey, and the, the, um, the psalmist is, is kind of opening up the doors for anybody who wants to follow us to this place of worship is, is able to follow us, is it, it, welcome to follow us. The, 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 the congregation that's following is, is kind of an open door. And so he says that all, he goes in in verse number one, the earth is the Lord's. In other words, the, the entire earth is the Lord's. You, the Jewish people would have struggled with this because they saw Jerusalem as being the Lord's place. So, so to say the whole earth is the Lord's was to, to really disagree with what they, what they held to, which was Jerusalem was the place of the Lord. And he says, no, the, the whole earth is the Lord's. He doesn't stop there, there, but he goes on to say, and all that is within it, or all that fills it. 
And this just is the, the implication of everything that is in the world. It's all the Lord's, okay? Every people group, every, uh, everything that, we, that sustains us, food and animals and all this stuff, everything is the Lord's. So the whole earth is the Lord's. And then he goes down to more specifics, and he says, the world and all of those who dwell therein. In other words, all are invited on this all are invited to join this congregation. All are invited to join this procession to go and worship the Lord, to go to the Lord's place, to go to Jerusalem, or again, to go to, to, go to heaven. All are invited. The gospel is, is for everyone. There's no one who is exempt from being a, um, someone to whom the Lord wants to hear the gospel. He tells us in John chapter number three that God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And, and he uses that term world again to, to open those doors so that the Jews and the Gentiles would understand that the gospel is for both or for all people. We actually see this theme in a lot, in a, in a lot of the New Testament. But John specifically, John 3, 16, 1 John 2, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the payment or the propitiation for our sins but not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. In other words, what, Jesus, what the uh, Apostle John is saying is that Jesus didn't just die for the sins of the Jewish people, but he, he died for the sins of the whole world, and all are invited to come in and join this congregation that is going to Jerusalem or going to heaven. And all of us are invited to, to join this congregation all of us are invited to repent and believe the gospel. All of us are invited to do that. There is no one who is not invited. There is no discrimination in the gospel. There is not a discrimination of old or young or black or white or rich or poor, or noble or common, tall or short, fat or skinny, good or evil. There, there is no discrimination in the gospel at all. All are invited to come and repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. All are invited. Again, the gospel tells us in Matthew 28 to go into all the world and preach the gospel or to make disciples of all the world. In Revelation 5, 9 and 7, 9, the scriptures tell us that there will be people in heaven from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every ethnicity. There will be people in heaven worshiping God as the reward for his sacrifice for our sins. There will be people in heaven from all over the world worshiping him. Matthew 24 and verse 14, the Bible tells us the gospel will be preached in all of the world and then the end will come. It's an invitation. The gospel is being introduced and, and, and being um, preached and taught and, and people are being invited from all walks of life, from all ethnicities, from all races, from all languages. And this is why if you go back to Acts 2, that they had the gift of tongues or, or languages. They were given the ability to speak in other languages so that they also could hear and receive the gospel. The gospel at that point was going to be spread into all the world. 
So the invitation of the gospel, the invitation of the good news of Jesus Christ, the invitation of repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ is an invitation to all of the world. It's an invitation to every single one of us. Repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ and you will be saved and you will be delivered and you will be welcomed into heaven. The Bible says in Acts 18 and verse 6, And then when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, you, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent for now I will go to the Gentiles. Now I will go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. We want to remember this, that it wasn't just a new plan that God had discovered to go to the Gentiles, but it was a part of his eternal plan. God's eternal plan was that the gospel would be for all the world. And he doesn't have to do it in our pattern and in our way. It's okay that the Jewish people were his people in the Old Testament. It's okay that that was the case, isn't it? We don't deny that as being a reality. The scriptures are very clear on that, that the Jewish people were God's people in the Old Testament. And then we see him introducing the gospel to the New Testament. We're okay with that. We're okay with him transitioning his focus from the Jewish people to the Gentile people. And we're okay with him transitioning his focus back to the Jewish people. We're okay with all that. What we know is that at the end of the day that all people are invited to follow Jesus Christ, to repent of their sins, and to place their faith in Jesus. That's what he's saying here. The whole world is his and everyone who is in it. And what's the basis of this invitation? Look at what he says in verse number two. What's the foundation for Jesus Christ claiming all people to be a, invited to this procession? It is that he has founded it, the world, upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. In other words, the basis for, all, for this invitation is that all people are a part of God's creation. There is a distinction between being a child of God based upon creation and being a child of God based upon regeneration. But let us never forget that everyone has the image of God whether they are saved or not saved. And we are called to show respect and honor to people just because they are created in the image of God. That's enough. I mean, I'm reminded in Genesis where it talks about when somebody's life is taken, that their life should also be taken. Why should their life be taken? Because they are bearing the image of God. The basis for this invitation of the gospel to all people is that God has created them. And not only that God has created them, but did you know that God is sustaining the lost world every single day? That he is providing for them. He is giving them food and water and blessings. God is doing this. God is blessing those who are his enemy every single day. Because they are his creation. Even though they're not his friends or his children based upon regeneration. The Lord is their creator. The Lord is their sustainer. Matthew 5 says this in verse 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So we're all, this is, an, this is an invitation. What the Lord is saying is this invitation is a universal invitation. All are invited to come and follow the Lord Jesus Christ into heaven. All are invited to repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you haven't repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this invitation is for you. It's for all. The second part of this journey, as they reach the hill of the Lord, the question is, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And this is a very serious question because if you remember, again, just a few, uh, a season prior to this, Uzzah has reached out and touched the ark and he's been killed on the spot and the fear of God has struck these people. So now they're trying to figure out who is worthy to go up this hill and to enter into the presence of God. This is no small task that they're, they're, they're singing about. Who is, who is worthy to accomplish this task of entering into the presence of God? Who is capable of doing this? Who is worthy? Who has accomplished the task of climbing this hill? This phrase, or these two phrases, the question of who can climb this hill and stand in the presence of God the implications of these, of these phrases is that nobody can. That nobody can stand in the presence of God. That no one can climb this hill that God expects us to climb. Matthew chapter number seven, if you wanna turn there, you're welcome to do so. Matthew chapter number seven. The Bible says this in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and, and many there be that go in. But the gate is narrow and the way is difficult that leads to life and there are few who find it. The way is difficult that leads to life. The, the word here literally means constrained. It's, it's almost like you've, you, you have to like force yourself to get through it. We know that the way is difficult to have eternal life. It's hard. It's arduous. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter number 19 that when the, the Lord is talking to the rich young ruler, his disciples are like, if rich people can't be saved, then who can be saved? And the Lord says to them, it's impossible to save yourself. It's impossible to climb this hill on your own. It's impossible to reach the top. People today in religions all over the world have made these steps if you do this, you're closer to the Lord. And if you do this, and they're, they're, they're helping people climb this hill of the Lord on their own. And in the end, they're going to find that they're on the broad road that leads to destruction. For no one can climb the hill of the Lord. No one is capable of reaching God's expectations for us. It is an impossible task. But what is possible, what is impossible for man is possible with God. You see, the question is, is how can we do this? How can we accomplish this? How can we make this happen? How can I save myself? What can I do to become worthy? And the answer is given to us in the text. And this text is, is, um, 
is special because it's very similar to the 15th Psalm as well. And you can look back and forth if you'd like, but it's, this, it's very, very similar. So he says, who can ascend into the holy hero or who can climb this mountain of the Lord? And then if you're able to climb the mountain, in other words, if you're able to do all of the things that God expects you to do, then who is able to stand in his presence? I'm reminded of when Moses went on the mount. He wanted to see the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, he said, if I show you my face, you will not live. It's impossible for man to climb the mountain of the Lord. It's impossible for man to stand in the presence of a holy God. It's impossible for that to take place. He says here, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, he who has an external, the idea of clean hands is an, is an external righteousness. He who is righteous on the outside. Matthew 5 and verse 48 says it this way. You therefore must be perfect. Do we have a problem with that? You therefore must be perfect. Is that problematic for us? It's problematic for us, isn't it? You skip over to Romans chapter number three, the Bible tells us, and you can look there with me if you want. You're probably familiar with it. The Bible says in verse number 10, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. They, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then he says in verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If the expectation is, if, I, if I'm going to climb this hill on my own, I have to climb this hill perfectly. I have to be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. And the answer is, I cannot climb this hill. I must not only have a pure hands or a clean outside. My, my flesh must be perfectly clean, which, which is impossible, but I also must have a pure heart meaning I must be inwardly clean as well, honest, perfect, having integrity in every way. Psalm 15 is a great passage to connect here. And then Jeremiah 17, 9, the Bible says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can, who can climb the hill of the Lord? Who can accomplish what God requires of us? Who can do the things that God demands of us? And the answer is, no one can do what God requires of us. No one can accomplish what God demands of us. And no one can stand in the presence of God who is holy and righteous and good. Listen to this in Revelation 5, verse 2 and 4. The apostle John is speaking and he says, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice saying, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? 
And no one in heaven or in earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. We can just kind of see the tears of the apostle as he begins to weep because no one is able to open the seals. And these seals are that which reveal those who are going to enter into heaven. These are important books. But no one is worthy. No one is capable of opening these books. No one has been able to climb the hill of the Lord and stand in his presence. For there is no one who is able and there was no one and is no one who is worthy. He says, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scrolls or to look into it. There is no one who is worthy. We remember again in Matthew 19, the rich young ruler says, what, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord says, you've got to keep all the commandments. And the rich man said, all of these things I've kept from my youth up. And he says, you've got to sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the Bible says that that young man became, became sorrowful because he had much possessions. At the very beginning of that context, the, good, the rich young ruler came up to Jesus and said, good master. You know what the Lord said to him? There is no one who is good but God. There is no one who is good but God. So we see this question, who can ascend up in the presence of the Lord? Who can climb his hill? Who can accomplish the things that he requires of us? And if we did and were able to accomplish all that God required of us, let's just say that you were able to put down a 12-step plan, how to get on top of that hill. Then when you reach it, you have to stand in the presence of the most holy God of the universe. Who can do that? The answer is no one. No one can accomplish that. No one has clean hands. No one has a pure heart. No one seeks after God. No one is righteous on their own. No one. We're all sinners, aren't we? We all fall short of the glory of God. So then the question is, who can get in? If no one is capable of reaching the top of the Lord's hill and no one is capable of standing in the presence of God, who is able to get in to heaven? Who is able to get through those gates? Who is able? The Bible tells us there is one who is able, amen? There is one who is able to get through those gates. There is one who is able to open those gates. And if you'll turn with me to Revelation 5, I was just reading there, a moment ago, but we'll turn there for some additional looks. Revelation chapter number five. I love this story, how it goes, because the way that the text flows, it's like who's gonna enter, who's gonna ascend this hill and who's gonna stand in the presence of the Lord? And then immediately at the uh, verse number uh, seven, it's like they're in the presence of the gates now. It's like the, the hill has become a, a past event. Now they're in the, now they're at the, the gates. They're at the gates of the city. They're at the gates of heaven, if you will. And they're there. And the, and the psalmist says, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, 
so that the king of glory may come in. What a powerful phrase. The, the picture, is, the picture is, is those who are guarding the gates and they, they have their heads down and they're not, they're not looking up and, and when, somebody, when somebody approaches, they, they, when somebody special approaches, they, they take notice of that and then they judge whether or not they are worthy to have the gates opened. And when the decision is made as to whether or not they are worthy, the gates will then open or they will be brought judgment to them. So the statement is, lift your heads, O ye who keep the gates. Lift your heads and look, judge whether or not I am worthy to enter. And then lift the doors. And you can picture the doors, not the kind that open like this, but more the kind that open like this. Lift the doors, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then the question is asked, again, this is a, this is a, uh, a song that is, that is, that is a, a song um, that, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, what's the word, Ron? Would they talk back? It's a song that you sing and you lead a responsive song. Thank you. A responsive song. So here's this responsive song. And the, and the Lord says, lift up your gates, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift, be lifted up, O ancient doors, and the king of glory will come in. And then the, those at the gates, they sing, who is this king of glory? In other words, who is worthy to enter? Are you worthy? And he says, the Lord, the response, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Revelation chapter number five and verse five, he says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that you can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the, the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood, you ransomed me. You bought me by your blood. This is the celebration that's in, that's in heaven, that there is one who is worthy there is one who is worthy. There's not thousands who are worthy. There's not millions who are worthy. There is one who is worthy. There is one who is capable of climbing the hill of the Lord. There is one who is worthy, who has the authority to stand in the presence of Almighty God. There is one who is worthy and only one. And I do not look forward one day to entering heaven because I have done something great. It is not ever going to be based upon 
what I have done, but it's based upon what he has done. He says, and by your blood you have ransomed people from God, for God, for every tribe, from every tribe and tongue and people and nations, and have made them kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Just picture it. You just just can't even fathom it. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And God's people said, amen. There is one who is worthy. There is one who is capable of accomplishing all the things that God required of mankind. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ did not come to abolish the law. Jesus Christ did not come to put away the law that God requires of us, but Jesus Christ came to complete it. He came to satisfy all of God's demands on mankind for us. He, Jesus, alone is worthy. He, Jesus, alone is capable of ascending the hill of the Lord. John 3 and verse 13 says this, no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. No one has ascended into heaven, but Jesus Christ. And then in Ephesians 4, verse nine and 10, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he first descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Who can ascend into the heavens but the Lord of glory? The Lord who is strong and mighty. The Lord who is mighty in battle. The Lord who is victorious. The Lord who wins. And the Lord has won. There's a prophecy in Genesis chapter number three that the seed of the woman, which would be the Lord, would would be bruised in his heel, but he would bruise the head of the serpent seed. He would bruise the head of the, he would give a mortal wound to Satan and he would experience a bruising in his heel. Jesus Christ was victorious in that he lived a perfect life. The fact that Jesus Christ never sins in 33 and a half years of life is a picture to us that he won over temptation. Not just any sin, but you find in Luke chapter number four that Jesus Christ was actually tempted by Satan himself to sin And Jesus Christ did not sin. Jesus Christ never gave in to one temptation, although, according to Hebrews 4, he faced every temptation. 
He never gave in to one temptation. He never submitted to one sin. Not only did he not sin externally, but he did not sin internally. We could say of the Lord that he had clean hands and a pure heart. We could say of the Lord Jesus Christ that he was perfect, for never did he sin. First Peter, in, in the, at the end of your Bibles, in First Peter chapter number two, verse 22, the Bible says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Amen. He was victorious in that he lived a perfect life. He was victorious in that he died a substitutionary death. In other words, Jesus Christ died for your sins and my sins. Romans 5 and verse 8, the Bible says that God displayed his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we still continued in sin, Christ Jesus died for us. He died in our place. He died for our sins. Jesus Christ was victorious in that he did not have his life taken from him. Jesus Christ gave his life willingly. When we look at the cross, we often see a man whose life was stolen from him. Jesus Christ's life was not stolen from him. He gave it willingly. Jesus Christ laid down his life for his sheep as a substitute for their sins. This was a victory, not a defeat. Jesus Christ spent three days in the grave. You know what he did on the third day? He rose again, didn't he? Jesus Christ was victorious in his resurrection. He's no longer in the grave. The grave has no power over Jesus Christ. Sin, death, and the devil have no power over Jesus Christ. He was powerful over them. He was victorious in his resurrection. Acts, 20 and, Acts 2 and verse 24 says this, God raised him up, loosing the pains of sin, loosing the power of sin, Watch this phrase, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Amen? Amen? Jesus Christ was more powerful, and Jesus Christ is more powerful today. His death was not because he was weak. His death because, was because he was powerful. His resurrection was not because it was, he was weak. His resurrection was because his, he was powerful. And his daily care and shepherding in our lives is not because Jesus Christ is weak. It's because Jesus Christ is powerful. John 10, verse 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up again.
Listen to me this morning, folks. Jesus Christ is not in the grave. Jesus Christ is not dead. He's living. He's alive today. He's alive in my heart today. He's alive at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. He won. Who can enter into heaven? The answer is only one is worthy. Only one is capable of having those gates opened for that one. Who is it? It is the Lord of glory. It is the one who is mighty in battle. It is the one who is strong to win. It is the one who died, was buried, and rose again the third day. He alone is worthy of entering and opening heaven's gates. So here's the question. Open the gates. Who's there? It's the Lord, strong and mighty, and mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, and the King of glory will come in. The last question that I have for you this morning is simply this. How do we get in? I mean, that's the question, right? We know Jesus won. We trust that he is powerful. We trust that he is capable. We trust that he is worthy. We trust that he is perfect. But how do we get in? Because there's no one here that is perfect. There's no one here that is worthy. The the answer is found as the congregation sings the last verse of the song. And they say this, who is the king of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. This word literally means he is the Lord of a massive number of people. He is the Lord of people. So Jesus Christ doesn't enter heaven's gates on his own. There is a massive congregation that are following him into heaven. And they're all entering heaven, not based upon their merits or their righteousness. They are entering heaven. I am walking into heaven because of what my representative, what the one who goes before me has done. You see, the gates are open because Jesus Christ is worthy. And we are invited to come in, not because we have climbed the hill of the Lord on our own strength, but because we have followed the one who is capable of climbing the hill of the Lord. We have walked in his steps. We have stood behind him when he cries out, open the gates. Who can come in? It's the king of glory, powerful and mighty. And we stood there with him, following him as the gates were open and he walks in fully meritorious. And he has given exactly what he deserves, this great king entrance into his home. And then we enter with him. And we enjoy those blessings because of him. And everything we have stems from who Jesus Christ is. How can we enter into heaven's gates? How can we become a partaker of all that he has done? Listen to what he says in verse number six. Such is the generation of those who seek him of those who follow him. Listen to me this morning, folks. Jesus Christ is the shepherd and the Lord of a massive number of people. Amen? 
It's good to be numbered with those people, isn't it? It's good to be numbered with those people. You can be numbered with those people this morning. You can become a part of that glorious number that when the gates of heaven open and Jesus Christ walks in, that you will follow him and they will let you in because of who you are following. It will never be based upon what you have done, but it will be based upon who you are following. It will be based upon who you are following. John 10 and verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they, what's the next two words? And they follow me. And I give them everlasting life. In in other words, what Jesus says is, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them my life. Because his life is the only one that's everlasting. We get his life. That's how we get to enter. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man snatch them out of my hands. Jesus Christ opens the door and all of those who follow him are allowed to enter. Colossians 3 and verse 3 says, and you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Just a few things. Trust that his sacrifice is sufficient, meaning that you do not have to pay for your own sins, but that Jesus Christ sufficiently paid the price for your sins. You have to trust that. You have to believe that. All of those who embrace that Jesus Christ paid for their sins are set free in Christ. Trust that his sacrifice was sufficient. Trust that his sacrifice was personal. Not this that Jesus died for the whole world, but that Jesus died for John Mark Prettyman. That Jesus died for me. That when he was hanging on that cross, he knew exactly who I was and he was redeeming me in that moment. That's what it means to follow Jesus. To trust that his resurrection is new life for us. Romans chapter number six, the Bible says, if he is resurrected, we believe that we also shall and that we should walk in newness of life. It is the embracing that his resurrection is our resurrection. His death is our death. It is an embracing of his word as a guide and a direction for life. And it is the trusting that his spirit lives within us helping us to understand and giving us strength for each day. It is embracing all that Jesus Christ is for us. And it ultimately leads us to serving him. When we know, listen folks, when we know what Jesus Christ has done and we know who he is, it doesn't have to be demanded that we follow him. It becomes a privilege to follow him. It becomes a natural fruit to follow him when we embrace who he is and what he has done for us. And then remember this, entrance into God's family and entrance into heaven is a gift of grace, not a wage for working. The Bible says in Romans 6 and 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through and in 
Jesus Christ our Lord. Salvation is in Christ. We follow him. We embrace his leadership. We trust his path. We trust that he will end up where we need to be and where he needs to be and is worthy to be. And as we follow him, one day we will stand before the gates of heaven with him and we will enter those gates in full, in full honor, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. I want to read two verses to you in closing. If you want to join me, Revelation chapter 22, the very last book of the Bible. If you're here with us this morning and you have not, you're not, you would say, I am not a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of this world. I'm a follower of myself. I'm a follower of all these things. But I can honestly tell you that I am not a follower of Jesus Christ. I just want to give you a couple of encouragements here in the close of this sermon. The Bible says in verse number 17, the spirit and the bride say come and let one, the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires to take water of life without price. The call is, is to come to Jesus. It is to come to Jesus in repentance and repentance just simply means a forsaking of your way and the embracing of his way. It's like saying, repentance is like saying you can't follow yourself and follow Jesus. So you have to follow one or the other. Right now you're following this path, so to follow this path, you have to forsake this path. That's repentance. It's, it's not really a difficult thing to think about or to consider. It has to happen in order for you to become a follower of Jesus. But he says this, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, then come to him. Embrace what he has done for you in faith. Trust him and he will save you. And then the last in closing, in Jude, you're familiar with it, and I referenced it in my sermon. In Jude, verse 24, the Bible says this, now to him, Jesus, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Jesus Christ is capable of presenting us before God blameless. In other words, we can stand, the whole question of who can ascend the holy hill and who can stand in the presence of the Lord, the answer is, is that we can as long as we stand in Christ. He presents us to the Father and we are seen as righteous because we bear his garments. We can stand in the presence of his holiness, blameless, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. To the only God and Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. I say this to you this morning. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I will tell you from experience that there's no one better to be a follower of. There's no one better to be a follower of. It's difficult to understand that if you haven't embraced that. But being a follower of Jesus Christ means a lot of good for us. But ultimately, we do it for his glory because he alone is worthy and he alone is capable. We trust that and we live as if he would never fail us. 
I think of what the Bible says in Romans 10 and verse 11. All those who put their trust in the Lord will never be ashamed. And we can say to that as Christians, amen. Amen. Father, we thank you. During this Christmas season, we thank you for what Jesus Christ has done for us. We thank you, Lord, that you are still in the business of saving people, that you love people, that the world is yours in the fullness thereof, and you've invited all to come and repent to place, your, place their faith in Jesus Christ as their only Savior. You have, you have made us aware of our own fallenness and the fact that we cannot meet some standard that you have set for us because we are sinful but that Jesus Christ has met that standard. He has paid for our sins. He has opened the gates of heaven and all of those who follow him in faith will enter based upon what he has done. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for the salvation that you have given us. And we pray that if there's anyone here today that has not embraced that truth for themselves in a life-changing way, that you would open their hearts today that they would receive it and never be the same for it. Lord, we look forward to one day being with you, and um, we thank you for that reality and that promise. Be with us this week, Lord, as we serve you in the world around us. May we be a light that shines in Christ's name.